0: It makes me very, very happy, and it helps the channel grow. And feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with, and let's work out together. Hello, team, and welcome to episode 299 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Thatcher Wine. Thatcher is the founder and CEO of Juniper Books, a speaker, and an author. If you've ever thought that multitasking is the key to your productivity and getting through your to-do list, after this conversation, you may want to think again. Studies show that only 2% of us can really multitask. Some say those 2% are entirely women too. And in today's conversation, I speak with Thatcher, who recently wrote a book on monotasking and how that may be the key to getting more done and in an effective manner too. In this episode, you can expect to learn what are some of the disadvantages to multitasking, what we can do to protect our attention in a world that's only getting more distracting, along with what practices you can put in place to spend less time being busy and more time being productive. So without further ado, that's your wine. That's your wine. Welcome to the show. How are you today?
1: I'm excellent. Thanks for having me, Elliot. I'm glad to hear. And
0: it's a pretty early one for you. You are just telling me about your early starts of the day. When do your days typically
1: start? Uh, so I pretty much wake up at 5am every day. I don't set up an alarm clock or anything. My body just wants to get up and get the day started. I have had to learn in recent years, you know, how to set up the right, you know, optimal morning. And we happy to talk about that in my routine throughout our conversation.
0: Yeah, we'll absolutely cover that later. And was. That's always the thing that you did. You were able to just wake up. I, I'm an early riser personally, but I don't think I could do it without my alarm. i love the idea of not setting an alarm, but I'm almost uh, a little bit paranoid that I
1: would wake up at 9, 10 a.m. every morning if that was the case. I, you know, it's really hard for me to sleep late, even if I try. I, I it's, it hasn't been a lifelong thing. I mean, I was a teenager once <laughs> and I did sleep till noon um, and I was good at that. But, you know, pretty much in the past, I'd say 15 years, starting in my 30s, you know, I started really feeling like I was a morning person. Did my clearest thinking then. I like to get up and stretch and make my tea and read in the morning. So I like to have some quiet time. and, And that's what I found is the best place to find it. Those early morning hours.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm just going to try that alarm thing soon enough. Or we'll wait and see how that goes. But for those people who might have not heard yourself about yourself before and the work that you do, can you give us a little bit of that context on who you are and what it is that you do?
1: Yeah. So my I've written a couple books. My most recent book is called The 12 Monotasks. Do one thing at a time to do everything better. And it's all about monotasking, which is the opposite of multitasking, which is what we mostly tend to do and what society and our culture encourages us to do all day long, every day, do more, do more at one time. And I came to this philosophy by being an entrepreneur and a parent and just somebody, you know, creative living in this world where I, there's a lot that I want to do. And my impulse is to try to do it all at once. But I found about five years ago that I, I hit the wall. I just couldn't do it. And that was when I was um, going through cancer treatment for lymphoma. Soon after that, I Went through a divorce, and my business, which is called Juniper Books, and we design libraries um, and make special edition book sets, had suffered while I was distracted. And so it took a lot of attention to build it back up and put it back together, and and be a good parent and be a you know as productive and creative and successful as I was before. And I kind of looked around to figure out like what am I doing wrong? You know, what's the thing that's missing? Yes, I went through these hard things. People go through things in life that are very distracting and take all your attention, but. I was really struggling to figure out a way to start to get things done and feel good about myself, not feel like I was stressed out and overwhelmed all the time. And I came up with this philosophy about monotasking, that it's not that we need to do more, it's really that we need to do less. We need to take things away until we've got one thing left, give our full attention to it, do good work, be fully present in a conversation. We'll talk about what all the monotasks in our lives are. And you know, once you do that, finish it, take a break then move on, do the next thing. And what you find is you get more done, you feel much happier, less overwhelmed, less stressed, and you make fewer mistakes, you do your best work. And, um, and people actually really appreciate it when you're fully paying attention to them. So there are lots of benefits to monotasking.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I want to touch on some of those in just a moment, but I want to go back into your story. And do you think those big points in your life, those turning points that came around five years or so in terms of going through cancer treatment, that divorce as well. Do you think that was a bit of a turning point in terms of moving you towards multitasking? I mean, away from multitasking, I should say, and onto monotasking. And do you feel that that needed or something of that grasp or that amplitude needed to happen in order for you to make those switches? Or do you think you would have got to this place anyway?
1: I do look at those experiences, even how difficult they were as, as a gift you know, to give me the perspective that I really needed to both change my own life, you know, while I was in my forties and and able to, you know, have the second, you know, half of my life ahead of me. And also just be able to share the message with the world, to come up with something that, you know, as a creative and as an entrepreneur and, and a writer that I really felt like I could do. Would I have come to it otherwise? I, I sometimes look back and I wonder like, did I kind of do this in the past? And I just didn't really know it and didn't really make use of it enough. And, and I think there's an element of that. Like I've I've always loved reading books. I built a whole business around it. I've always loved going for hikes and bike rides and going skiing and doing things with that take my full attention, that take me away from, you know, working and thinking about work all the time. But at the same time, I look back and I know, you know, I was always like sending an email or a text from the chairlift in between ski ski runs. So, you know, giving myself Permission to do one thing at a time is different from, you know, doing it in the past, but not really saying like it's a thing (laughs) and that we should strive towards that. And I think a lot of that realization both comes from the realization I had, both came from what I went through, but also, you know, personally. So the difficulty of it and like being knocked down so low that like I only had the energy (laughs) to do one thing at a time while I was going through chemo, chemotherapy. So it's like, If I wanted to go for a walk while I was on chemo, when I was further into treatment and not feeling so good, like I had to bring my full attention to it and decide, like, do I have the energy to go down the hill? Am I going to have it to go back up the hill? You know, and you had to think about these things that normally we just do. So it really did force me to separate things out so I could focus on one thing at a time. And also gave me this realization just about the world we live in and how like, Everything encourages you, your phone, the notifications, the apps to, you know, add one more thing, look at this, look at that, then go back to what you're doing, you know, and the pandemic has also been very enlightening, I think, for people that have realized, like, it's really overwhelming to sit at home beyond, you know, do working at home on a Zoom call, toggle over and answer an email, have a conversation with somebody in your house, etc. That's multitasking. And it's just... opportunities abound. So you really have to make a choice to monotask. Absolutely. And I can imagine a lot of those experiences allowed
0: you to crystallize that philosophy ultimately and realize that, yeah, there's nothing going to be like only having so much energy to do one task, to realize that you know when you are centered on one task, there's actually a lot of value to it. If you talk to anyone, they're overwhelmed, they're stressed, they've got an endless to-do list, and they just can't keep up with it. So it's no surprise that a lot of people come to this conclusion. I think, like you said, the COVID pandemic forced a lot of us to look at the things that we're doing on a day-to-day basis also forced us to have to do a lot of things almost simultaneously and probably realized that that might not be the best way. However, there are going to be a lot of people who are thinking, well, multitasking is my superpower. You know, I was actually looking for your book reviews before we got on the interview today and one of the people said, I'm a single mom. This would never work for me. One star to your book, which I felt was a little bit of shame because I think it's all about the perspective, of course. But what do you say for those people who actually claim that multitasking is their superpower? superpower.
1: It's interesting. So people, everybody thinks they can multitask, right? If you asked people, they'd be like, yeah, I can do it. And and then some of those people would say, I'm great at it. It's my superpower. But the studies that have been done show that only 2% of people can actually do two things or more at a time. And I'm talking about like cognitive things with your brain, not just folding the laundry while listening to this podcast. I mean, that's like a benign form of multitasking. So, but actually trying to carry on two conversations at once, whether those are in the real world or virtually, is difficult. And, you know, I recognize that some people just realize or think that they have to do all these things. And I think culturally and throughout history, we've put a lot of pressure on people to at least make it look like they can do everything, even if they can't. And and I think a lot of, there is this stereotype that women come multitask better than men. And my response to that is, you know, While that may be true, why is it true? Like historically, you know, society has asked women to do more to play, you know, perform all these roles and to you know not you know resist it. And so I, I don't think that that's fair culturally that we ask people to do more than one thing at a time. That we allow some people to just be like, oh, you can go do one thing and and be good at it. So I think you know we really it would be more fair as a society if people were really given the space to focus and be creative or focus on their children or focus on, you know, the one thing that they're doing. I get that there's a lot of economic pressure and there's a lot of pressure from our employers and from trying to keep up with everybody else. But I think we, you, you, what you realize is, is it's not really good for our health or our mental well-being to internalize that pressure and to always be doing, performing multiple things at one time. So if you can, I, I think of it in terms of the three P's So one is perspective. If you can just have the perspective, like, am I doing more than one thing at a time? Okay, what are we doing? Can you pick one of them? Can you give yourself permission to do the one thing at a time that you chose out of the things that you brought your perspective to? And then can you really, you know, be fully present in what you're doing with that activity? And then once you've finished it, go back to the beginning, the six things that you were maybe doing at once and and repeat the cycle and really try to be fully present and give yourself permission to do one thing at a time. And see if it works for you. See if you feel better. See if you get more done. See if you made fewer mistakes. See if people around you appreciate the fact that you were fully present.
0: And what advantage does those in the 2% really have? Do you think that they are far superior to many of us mere mortals who can't? quite multitask. I know I'm not in this bracket of people whatsoever. If there's anything going on out in my peripheral when I'm trying to do some deep work or something along those lines, I find I, and it's weird because I don't feel like my character trait is to be highly distractible. However, I really try to create the most kind of minimal distraction based environments in orders of thrive. I've just realized that it's very hard for me to focus. I can work in coffee shops, for example, but I'm trying to close off everything around me. So is there any like real advantages to those people as well for someone who's like, yep, I'm just going to stay true to my multitasking ways. Or do you think that there is a, maybe a brighter picture for those who are just going to pick one single task and then stop and then go on to the next single task?
1: I mean, historically you gotta have to look at how the human brain developed. So And why we have this ability to pay attention to things and kind of notice stuff that happens in the periphery. You know, a lot of it's to keep us safe and be alert to dangers out there. You know, that sensibility or ability in our brain, like, is basically exploited by technology companies to get our attention right now. So, you know, most of what this amazing ability of the human brain to notice distractions and to take in lots of information at once, you know, is being applied for. Is is mostly out of our control. So I think in answer to your question, if you have that superpower to be a super tasker, that's what the study um, that found that there are two percent of people that can do more than one thing at a time called them. You know, if you can use that towards towards good and towards you know doing things that are within your control, I think that's great. I think you know you can probably get more done and be more present, and, and probably some of those people go on to do things that are very intensive with their cognitive abilities, like being a pilot being a surgeon. So I think if you can use those, you can recognize if you're one of them. I don't think there's like any testing center yet (laughs) where you can go to. But if you can recognize those abilities and then choose your career, and that doesn't stress you out to do the two things at once, then that's great. And I think for the other 98% of it, it's also great that you recognize, you know, what your limitations are and how you can best focus. Coffee shop example you gave is great. Like just because everybody else is going to a coffee shop and working and being productive amid amidst all the buzz, so to speak, you know, it doesn't mean you have to, you can monotask your observations of yourself to figure out like what works for me, just because that works for, you know, my friend, Joey doesn't have to work for me. I get my best work done at this desk at home with these headphones on. I figured that out. So when I do my best work, that's what I do. That's where I am.
0: Absolutely. And I think Joey's just busy and he's not really productive. I think a lot of people have this harsh realization that maybe they're not quite as productive as they think they are, only once they might see someone who does spend time focusing, you know, or at least is one of these blessed people who are in that 2% and then realize, oh, well, I have got this endless to-do list that never seems to get completed. Ah, my output of work within this specific or given time isn't quite as good as it is when I'm at home and on my own and just focusing very, very intently as well. So I think that's another aspect to it. And I'm keen to see if boredom plays a big role as well. I think a lot of us don't have much of an issue being solely focused on one task if we're really, really enjoying what we're doing. So do you think part of it is managing? manifested based on not really enjoying what we're doing so much.
1: Yeah. I mean, part of it's not enjoying what we're doing and also just not being comfortable with boredom. Like you said, I mean, that, that's definitely a real issue in the 21st century that most people don't know what it's like to be bored. What's the first thing you know people do when you go out to a restaurant by yourself, order food or you're waiting food. Or, you know, you scroll through your phone. Like you don't have to be bored, and you feel like if you're the person who's just sitting there eating your food and contemplating the universe or people watching, like it's strange. It looks weird. Like you don't want to be that person. You want to be the person who's like, oh, I'm do- I'm doing something. I'm not just being bored and doing nothing. So, so I think we have this habit of just reaching for our phones all the time whenever there's you know, a hint of boredom, plus, you know, all the media multitasking that's happened now, it's it's not enough to just watch, you know, Netflix. It's like, you got to also have Snapchat open and also have your laptop open and, you know, be working on an email. I say that jokingly, you don't have to, but that's what people do. That's like become our habit and it's become the norm. And so it's like, even though you're doing something that's not enough. Like you're not curing your boredom unless you you layer on the multitasks. So I think it's just something we should be aware of and and we should make a conscious choice to, to do a little test, you know, see if we feel better when we like give our full attention to one thing and if we do better work and all the things that we talked about and we, you know, feel more present. We like observe all the plot details or whatever if, if we are watching a show and or the conversation details if we're texting or or talking to a friend. But so, yeah, so I think a lot of it's about that observation and then making that choice and then seeing if you feel better and just recognizing that like this, it's not, we didn't do anything wrong that all this multitasking happened. Like it's it's essentially been forced upon us. And if it makes us feel good and you want to keep doing it, great. If, it, if you recognize it, like, actually, it doesn't make me feel good. It always makes me feel like I'm never getting anything done. It makes me feel like I'm overwhelmed. I'm not really present. Um, I'm not enjoying the things I'm doing, even if they're amazing things. That's what I hear all the time. It's like, I love my job. You know, I love my kids. I love my hobbies. But like, if I do them all at the same time, I don't enjoy them, any of them. Like if I'm only half paying attention to my kids and not really, you know, being present on the, on the hike or whatever. So I think, you know, if you can recognize whether you feel better or you, and and if it's more sustainable to be fully present and do one thing at a time, then, then you can choose to do that more often. You don't have to do it all day, every day. Like, You can do it in blocks of time, 20 minutes here and there, just to reconnect with yourself. And then if you have a super stressful job, like, you know, I've heard from people that work in industries with a lot of deadlines, and a lot of projects going on at once, like journalism, maybe. And, you know, it's hard. And so I, I, I recognize that while you're at your job, you might have to do a lot of multitasking, but then you can also choose to kind of counterbalance that with more monotasking before and after work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking about that environment that a lot of people will be finding themselves in. A lot of these offices at the moment are going for a kind of collaborative approach where they have all the employees in one open space versus having people in offices and what that's going to do to quote-unquote, inspire spontaneity and all of these exciting things, but it actually takes away, you know, the majority of the people who actually aren't creative from actually doing the work that they want to be completing. So I think, yeah, gentle balance between choosing where you're going to really focus on maybe being a bit more present doing those single tasking and then seeing whether your environment even allows for it is going to be super important. And do you think a lot of the reason why people won't accept that multitasking isn't quite as effective as they would like it to be is that they then have to accept that they might not be able to complete all of the things that they've committed to?
1: (laughs) That's a good question. Yes. I mean, I think that's definitely um, comes into play a little bit, but you know, I think at the the end of the day, like people do want to complete things. And like, there's a lot of satisfaction that that comes from that and the sense of fulfillment and creativity and just the joy of crossing something off your list. Because the 21st century life is very busy. There's a lot of stuff that we want to need to do. Maybe when it comes to our, our jobs, it's a little different the equation versus, you know, wanting to go climb that mountain or, you know, finish the race or, or something else in our personal lives, you know, but I think people do want to finish what's on their to-do list. I think there is a lot of pressure though, that also comes from like social media and FOMO and seeing celebrities, especially influencers that seem to be able to do it all. Like they're a musician and they have a company and they're, you know, visiting the white house and this and that, like they seem to be doing a million things and multitasking, all of it, you don't know that they have a staff of 20 people <laughs> that are really, you know, making that possible. You also don't know if they're happy. Sure. They put up the pictures, you know, that seem like they're doing great things and they're, they're loving it and smiling and, you know, being on the beach or wherever. But, you know, I think a lot of, I think we should just recognize that a lot of the sociological pressure we put on ourselves to always be doing more, you know, comes from seeing other people doing more and you don't really know the whole story behind it. So I think we should be realistic about about what it takes to do things and get them done and, and feel good about them.
0: Absolutely. And I feel that we've made a good case for why multitasking can be problematic and might not be the most effective approach. So now it comes to the alternative of monotasking. Can you run us through what exactly that looks like on a day-to-day basis? For example, is it a case of time blocking? Is it truly just focusing on one task? And you know, if your kids run in the room, you say, not right now, I'm on my single task. Or what does it actually look like on a practical level?
1: So in the book, I, I lay out 12 mono tasks. And the the basic principle of the book is that if you do things like reading, listening, walking with your full attention for at least 20 minutes, um, ideally at least 20 minutes, you can start with smaller amounts. You'll start to kind of rebuild your attention span and your ability to do more than one thing at a time. So yes, there's a kind of head-on approach to getting your work done, but there's also a cross-training that happens. We can't just be on our phones all day doing TikTok and Instagram and then assume that, you know, oh, as soon as we're at our desk, we can pay attention. As soon as we're out on a date, like we'll be able to listen and be present. So we have to train for those things. And I think we can cross train. doesn't have to be a one-to-one. Yes, you do get better by listening in more conversations like this, but you also can go to get a good night's sleep and you really focus on getting good sleep. Like you'll be more productive the next day. So if you monotask your sleep, that's one of them. So... You know, So there's this cross-training element that we just have to counterbalance all the time that we especially spend on our devices. And then when it comes to being productive at your desk, time blocking is great. And again, just kind of get take it, having the perspective, like, am I trying to do more than one thing at a time? Can I give myself permission to write this email, this proposal, to make this call and not toggle back and forth between applications while I'm on a, on the call or doing the work? So I think a lot of it comes from that. And then, you know, observing what worked for me, I'm going to do more of that. And if it didn't work, I'm going to experiment with, you know, some other approaches to it. So, you know, I think another thing that's super important is to take breaks. So nobody besides, you know, maybe pilots and and people that have trained for this for years, like can pay attention for a long time. Like the average attention span these days is keeps going down, but it's like 12 seconds. (laughs) And so... We have to, you know, learn how to extend that. So, you know, the more things that we can do to to extend it, the better by practicing the monotask, but and taking away the distractions. So, so that's the other thing is like when you're at your desk and you're doing the work, like put your phone in a drawer, put it on do not disturb, turn off silence all the notifications on your computer, don't check your email, you know, have don't have the window open at the same time that you're trying to do something else. So those are some of the the tips that I have. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So not only is it about singularly focusing on one task. I think a lot of it is distraction, yeah, minimalizing, and it's just making sure that you are free from as many as possible. So you mentioned the phone distraction. I think we're all very aware of the attention that that can take away from Absolutely anything that we're doing. What other things are you eliminating from your day when you are doing those dedicated work blocks or just focusing on something you want to enjoy? It doesn't always have to be work, I guess. If you just want to really get back to enjoying your hobby once again, just putting your phone in the locker room once you're going to play that sport is probably a smart idea. So, do you have any other things that you do to eliminate distractions?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, definitely when I'm at my desk, you know, putting on the headphones, whether I have music on or not, is, is very helpful, I found to me uh, for focusing. The You know, definitely minimizing your phone and and all the technology, being able to go for a walk or play a sport, like you said, without your phone is huge. Like, you know, there was a time 20, less than 20 years ago that we didn't take our iPhones with us and we were fine. We survived. And I think, you know, there's this sense that like, if I don't have my phone with me, you know, I'm not gonna be reachable. There's gonna be an emergency or whatever. And I think if we can just break that seal a little bit and and feel like, you know, I went for a walk and everything was okay um, and I didn't need to take pictures. So then that, you know, is very helpful. Um, I think, you know, one framework that I think of is is kind of a three-step process. There's like thinking before you do a task doing while you're actually doing and then afterwards telling about it and so think do tell and a lot of times we just we're always thinking about stuff before we go do something like am i you know i have so much to do what should i do you know i should try to do it all at once i you know or how, here's how i'm going to do it or whatever we just overthink things and then the doing obviously is just like doing the work playing the sport and the telling is like here's how i'm going to tell the story later or how i'm going to take this, you know picture and put it on social media And so a lot of times we combine all three of these those things into one. So we're like overthinking while we're doing, and we're also documenting it with pictures. And so like, if we just separate those three things and just focus on like being in the task, it's, you know, we do better work. We enjoy what we're doing and you know, who cares? Like you, if you have some idea later about how you're going to tell somebody about this or post it on social media, go back and take a picture or whatever, but don't, don't always kind of pollute the purity of, you know, being present with them, you know, always thinking about how you're going to talk about it later. Yeah. And I think the age
0: of social media definitely doesn't help with that. And before I ask a question about technology and social media, I want to ask a question about mindfulness. A lot of this approach and this philosophy sounds very similar to being present in the moment, being centered with where you are, really focusing on what you're doing. So what is the difference between being mindful and monotasking?
1: So there's a really big overlap between mindfulness and monotasking. And I've been a practitioner of mindfulness and meditation and, and yoga and, and things like that for, for a long time. You know, when created, when writing the book and creating this whole concept and philosophy around monotasking, I wanted to make it super secular and accessible to 100% of the world. I didn't want people to feel like I can't do that because it's too spiritual or it conflicts with my beliefs or, you know, whatever um, other reason people might have for, for saying I don't want to do that. Because I think we all have... Stuff we want to get done. We all have too much to do. And so I wanted to create something that was just like, am I doing six things at one time or am I doing one thing? Can I focus on the one thing and do it well and then move on? And can I do it any time a day with anything I'm doing? I don't have to wait till I meditate at the end of the day or go to yoga class on the weekend or go to a retreat once a year. Like I can drop into it with anything I'm doing. This conversation, you know, the email I have to write afterwards, the breakfast I'll have later, you know, I can give all those things my full attention and all of it's a practice opportunity. So yes, that's similar to mindfulness. You can practice mindfulness with almost anything you're doing, but you know, we, you don't need any special training necessarily to practice monotasking. I think you can just see opportunities all over the place to to do it.
0: Absolutely. So it's like monotasking is mindfulness wrapped in a productivity hack. It's almost like appealing to the masses by showing them that, yeah, they don't have to do the things that are typically associated around mindfulness. It can just be as simple as the daily tasks that we all do, just getting back to the present moment, really just 100% engaging and focusing in that and allowing the rest to be. And I think that you're absolutely right in the sense that it does have a knock-on effect as well. I've been a big fan of meditation, probably the best, four or five years now. And it is very bizarre to me how it has such a crossover into the conversations I have into the tasks that I'm doing as well. So I can definitely see the rationale for that as well. So on the note of social media and technology, how much has that exacerbated the challenge? And obviously, social media and technology are all going to continue to go in the direction they're going at the speed, if not faster than they're going. So are we really just needing to protect ourselves from what's to come? Or do you think that there's anything that the bigger companies, the social media companies and everything along those lines could be doing to help with this uh, lack of focus that we're having and our inability to monitor us?
1: Yeah, so the, the future is only going to be more distracting than the present. And that's just the trend that we're on. And there's going to be more technology embedded in our lives than there is now. And the companies that are already big That are, you know, attracting a lot of our attention and creating a lot of distractions for us are only going to get more sophisticated about how they do that and and what tools they deploy. There's, you know, just way more people and money on the other side of the screen than there are on our side of the screen looking at it. So, you know, they're going to be coming up with ways to to distract us. And, you know, there's the, the profit motive there that our attention is very valuable. And the concept of the attention economy um, is basically that our attention is one of the most valuable commodities in the world today. And it can be harvested. People, you know, companies can come up with new ways to attract our attention. And whether that's an ad or a notification or an app, or a, you know, just purchasing something or spending time with something that, that makes it valuable to the Companies on the other side of the screen. So so I think, again, we have to just acknowledge that, that that's the trend that we're on. And it's up to us to develop the skills and the capabilities to resist that when we need to. So that, like we talked about earlier, like if you choose to sit on the couch and do Snapchat and Netflix and email all at the same time, like it should be your choice. It shouldn't be some, you know, tech company's choice that they force you to do it. And it's beyond your control. I think we all have that experience of like, pick up our phone to do one thing. And then an hour later, we're like, I can't put it down. (laughs) I don't know why I can't resist it. So I think we, you know, companies like Apple, yes, are developing some features, you know, that allow you to put your phone on do not disturb or sleep mode or driving mode. Those are great. I think the simpler they are, the better. There's a whole, you know, cottage industry about complex tools to you know, or methods or hacks to figure out how to manage your time and manage your attention, you know, those almost become a distraction themselves if you don't use them right. So I think you just have to be cautious about that. And it's, I think there's a feeling some people have that's like, I just haven't found the one piece of software that will help me manage my whole life. I don't think that's ever going to happen. <laughs> so again, we have to like take personal responsibility and develop the strength, develop the strength to resist our devices and our phones and really design a life that works for us and that's sustainable doesn't make us feel stressed and overwhelmed and burnt out. And I think a lot of that is about just taking things away as opposed to adding them. And, you know, if we can just take away the things both in the individual moments and also maybe in our consumption habits and, you know, our Our desire to feel like we have to have, you know, all these side hustles or whatever to keep up with everybody else, you know, then we can get down to the core of what really works for us. And then we can build back on top. But if we're starting at this like super noisy, distracted level and adding stuff on, we can't really tell what works. And, And I feel like that's part of the moment that we're in right now.
0: Yeah, it's a real challenge. I heard a quote yesterday, someone saying that, you know, the commodity in the past for the rich was oil. And now the commodity is, of course, our attention. And what's interesting is that in the, past, yeah, you might be fortunate enough to come across oil, but now every single person in front of you has a degree of attention that is almost a market share that everyone wants to tap into. It's like something that literally business owners and everyone who is looking to make money, even with this podcast, for example, I am looking to provide value, but I'm also looking to take your attention for the time that you're listening to this podcast as well. So it's a very curious thing because of there is an element of value to it, but there's also an element of it that can be very much manipulated to whoever wants to make profit advantage as well. And the People that come to my mind. I mean, adults obviously had to take that personal responsibility, but as children, who I start to think of, you know, I don't feel like I grew up in an age of as many distractions. Certainly, the iPhone wasn't. I didn't have an iPhone so I was like eighteen or nineteen years old, so it wasn't so much of an issue for me. Phones were definitely a factor. But what can we do, maybe as parents, first and foremost, and what can um, children do to make sure that they don't fall into this trap, especially when it's quite fashionable to be, you know, involved with your phone all the time, to be doing a ton of things and with all the role models they're looking up to these days, it's that, you know, there's no one out there or not many people apart from yourself and, you know, a few others who are promoting do one thing, get really good at it, just really focus on that. So yeah, where are we going to be going with that when it comes to children?
1: It's a really great question and super timely. And, and I'm a parent I have two teenagers, 13 and 16. And you know, I can't claim to have cracked the code on on it because it's it's constantly changing. You know how they're what they're using, how they're distracted, what the rationalization is for why they need to do it, you know, be on their phones, etc., to keep up. And you know, maybe three things that I've I've figured out that you know aren't cure alls, but things that we do. One is you know, the real world has to be more interesting and more fun than the virtual world for at least part of the time. So you're competing with a very, you know, fun, entertaining, engaging device and connection to their friends. But if you can encourage as much as possible, you know, participating in the real world without a device, like we went bowling the other day and I encourage the kids to be social and, and do things with their friends so they can do things that aren't just texting back and forth. And it's, you know, so basically you have to make the real world more interesting and more engaging in small increments. It's, it's not going to take away the phone completely. The second thing we talked about a little bit before is like, can you break that cycle a little bit and show you of always having to have your phone with you? Can you go for a walk with your kids and say, let's all leave our phones at home or, you know, I'm going to have my phone just for an emergency. But, you know, can you leave your phone behind and just show that like it's possible to go do something for a little while and the world won't end if you don't have your phone. And then... Uh, another, you know, developing some rules around your house or, or life, like things I mentioned in the book, a rule that a friend has, that's no phones with food. So, you know, basically saying like, yes, you could bring your phone to the table, but it's just going to become a distraction. So why don't we, when we're eating at the din- dinner table, like none of us are going to have our phones. And when someone says, you know, I wonder if whatever, you know, leads to Googling, you know, I wonder what the score is in this game. Like... You're like, Oh, like, yeah, let's, let's look after dinner. It's so hard to do because kids are just like, that's a question I can get an answer. But if you all just, you know, put your phones in a drawer and, and really look up from your phones as, as another friend of mine uh, says, who has this thing called the Look Up movement, which is all about looking up from your phones. And, you know, can you just be like, can you sit with that feeling and you even talk about it? Like, yeah, what does it feel like to know that the answer to that question is in that drawer? (laughs) But can we be a little bit bored? Can we have a little bit of intellectual curiosity and have a little bit of patience and wait for it? Like make that interesting instead of just the instant gratification of always you know, being able to answer every question and, and document everything in our lives. Yeah, I absolutely love that.
0: And I think it's a super valuable piece of advice because it's not take it away. It's not, Spanish use of it and all this type of stuff, which I think it's very easy to go on the other end of the extreme to try and solve, you know, quite a challenging problem. But I really, I think that's probably as you've experienced with teenagers, the opposite of what you need to do in order to get them to, you know, take a little bit of time away from it. And at the same time, it's a part of our daily lives. You know, it doesn't have to be a part of our lives 24-7, but it certainly, is. So I think that's a a really, really nice, rational set of uh, advice that we can easily take away. And I want to transition onto things that will cultivate more of that mindfulness and more of that ability to Task. So, when it comes to scheduling your week, what do you do on that front? Do you start with the Google Calendar? Do you start slotting things in? Do you have morning and evening routines that you go through?
1: Yeah. So I have more of a like daily routine as opposed to a weekly routine. Uh, we talked a little bit about things I do, you know, in the morning, waking up early, and you know, having my stretching and my tea, and and then I, I, in an ideal world, I'm also well, meditating a little bit, but also writing in the morning before kind of the to-do list for my business really starts. So I always try to have a creative writing project going, and I, I usually have more than one. And <laughs> whatever I'm inspired by, you know, I work on that day, and then try and take a little bit of a break. So it's important to take breaks in between cognitive heavy tasks. So you know, when we go, 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 like we always feel burnt out basically later in the day. So. I try to make my day very sustainable by taking breaks, have a snack, go for a walk. I also take a break around 1:30 um every day and take a nap. I take a power nap almost every single day and it's 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes. I don't set an alarm for that either and I feel like when I wake up like I'm super alert and clear and the second half of the day is just completely a whole new day. And you know, I usually do most of my Juniper Books work kind of right before and right after that nap. And Yeah. And then if I have time to get in a bike ride or, you know, a hike or something, I do that as well, usually in mid late afternoon. And, you know, I, I, it's a schedule that I found works for me. I know other people have different demands. You know, I'm running a company, so I'm able to set my own schedule to a certain extent. But I think everybody can find within their structure, you know, a way to design it that it, that it works for them. I also, you know, encourage people to be open and honest and clear with their employers and their, their work just about like how they're going to get their best work done. If people have really invested the time in thinking about, about it, whether they work well at a coffee shop or at home, you know, whether the meetings are productive, et cetera. Like, I think if you express that and you communicate about it and your intention is really to optimize the work that you do and make fewer mistakes and be more productive and more creative whatever line of work you're in, like, and you express that like employers and managers are usually very receptive to that. And at least least willing to give it a try. So, you know, I think however you design your day or your week, um, that's helpful. I think, you know, when I've given talks, um, you know, I pick up all sorts of productivity hacks that people have come up with on their own. You know, one that I found interesting is, you know, people put fake meetings on their calendar (laughs) just to like, get their deep work time, to to use the Cal Newport term, which I think you referenced before. And, you know, I suggested maybe that should just say monotasking time, like monotasking the pitch to, you know, this client or whatever. And really showing like, I'm, it's not that I'm lying. (laughs) I'm not in a meeting. It's not that I'm pretending to be accessible to you. Like, I'm really telling you, like that I'm going to do this. I'm going to give it my full attention. And then, you know, everybody's going to benefit from the fact that I got it done. And then I'm going to be reachable and the work quality is going to be better.
0: Yeah, I find that two
1: things. It
0: requires discipline. I certainly know that because I have my set blocks in the day where I do specific work with my clients, for example. And I know that if my phone is open or if there's something else I want to be doing at the same time, I know it's not nearly as productive, but it is tempting. And then there's also the element of being a bit pretentious as well. It's also saying, well, you know, this is my protected time. You can't access me. And there's a lot of overcoming that as well. But I think that once you are able to recognize that it does take discipline to kind of minim, yeah, just minimize and remove those distractions. And there will be an air of people not understanding, but also ultimately it will be for your benefit and their benefit. I think it all then does take care of yourself. You're absolutely right. And you mentioned your company and I was very curious to hear about the role that reading plays in your life as well. And reading is one of those tasks where you literally can only monotask and that's the beauty of it, but it's also the challenge. So I was curious to get your take on, I know that I've been like this Before I've opted to go for an audiobook so that I can do something alongside the reading. However, I miss the act of physically reading as well. So, what role does reading play in your life when it comes to monotasking? Are you a fan of audiobooks as well, or are you uh, preferring to keep it more of the old school
1: technique? I do love audiobooks and I do listen to, you know, consume a fair number of books that way. A lot of them are like, you know, just because I want to turn off the lights and not be sitting. In a chair reading. <laughs> I basically want to just passively consume it. So I think those are great. And I think any way you consume books is, is good for the world. But I am also a, a huge fan of the printed book. And I think it provides benefits that we we didn't necessarily recognize, you know, until this digital era, really that when you're reading a, a printed book, like you you have to give it your full attention. That's the definition of monotasking. If you you know, only half pay attention and you're pretending to flip the pages, you won't get anything. You can't partially read a book. And that's fine if your attention wanders. It's like meditation. You just bring it back and like flip back to where you were and start reading again. So, you know, I think a lot about reading and the value it provides to the world these days. I think a lot of it's about that. It's not just that we consume information and we're entertained, but that we can sit still. We can calm our nerves systems. And it's like, it's like, you know, just rebuilding our ability to pay attention and to do one thing at a time when we read. And the other benefits that it has is like, you know, we studies have been done on this, that like when you read a book, as opposed to seeing the movie, like your, your mind is the one that's like creating an image of what it looks like and creating a mental map of like, the relationships between the characters and what they look like and the distances between places. And that's really good for our brains. It's like, you know, just stimulating this thinking versus having everything presented to us on a screen already decided for us. And so I think the depth of thinking and creativity and relationships that we can have in the real world are just improved by reading whatever you're reading. I mean, it can be fiction, sci-fi, fantasy, business, self-improvement, kids' books, you name it. Like Anything is good for you because it does inspire your brain to make those neural connections. And it also teaches you how to sit still. And, and I think that's really valuable. And, and we need to call upon that more than we realize, I think, in this, this day and age.
0: Absolutely. I could not agree more. And on that note as well, it occurred to me that there has never been, or there probably hasn't been a series of books created based on a film, but they probably, and as we always know, there's been so many, so many films created off a series of books, right? And as you mentioned there, it's the depth of the imagination that we can create when we allow our minds to have that space to think and to explore. Whereas, as you mentioned, when it comes to a movie, it's all kind of determined for us. And it was interesting to hear you mentioned that it's almost like a meditation in the sense you have to get back to the piece of text you're focusing on. And there's literally no way to keep up with a book if you are you know, between tasks, whereas you can kind of get the gist of a movie or a TV program if you're in and out of tasks. So it's, yeah, it's a really interesting one as well. So if anyone hasn't quote unquote got the time to read, what's an easy way to get back into having a piece of physical text in front of you? Do you have any hacks on that front?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think it's, it's baby steps. It's, you don't, you don't start with war and peace. If you haven't read a book in a long time, you start with, you know, a magazine that you pick up in the airport. And, and you read that on paper, just something that inspires you, whether it's about fitness or business or design or something. For me, you know, I love to go back to. I, I read the New Yorker, and the New Yorker has both like these short pieces at the beginning called "Talk of the Town" and then longer features. And so, if it's been a while since I read this, this used to happen to me a lot. Like I'd always start with the "Talk of the Town" pieces. It's I don't know what the word count is, but it's basically call it six paragraphs. So you start there, and then. You know, going back to reading something that you've already read before—a book, maybe you read in your childhood or high school or something—like um, J.D. Salinger, Kurt Vonnegut, a couple authors behind me, if people can see. Um, uh, you know, I love to reread their their books, and so reading something that's already familiar can also be an easy way back into reading a full length book. And then, then gradually you add on. So you also, you know, make a daily habit out of it if you can. And if you can't do that, maybe it's just a Saturday or Sunday habit. And a few other tips, like if you have a place in your home that you read, and that's like same way that like these headphones are a signal to me to like, do focused deep work. Like I have a reading chair. When I sit there, I read. I try not to do anything else in that chair. That's a privilege and a luxury that I have, but it's something that I've designed, and I and I do believe that, like with other mono tasks, you can have places you do them, and then you, you know, you just bring your focus to that task while you're there. So I think you know having the place to read, having you know sort of a progression of you know easy to slightly more challenging things, um, is great. I think also you know recognizing how big the universe of books is in a good way is helpful it could lead to decision fatigue like oh i i don't even know where to start <laughs> but just like see what the universe is trying to tell you like what are your friends talking about on their social media you know so that could be like the upside of social media that <laughs> you get recommendations for things you didn't know about you know or go into an independent bookstore and ask for a recommendation and just like be confident in the decision and and start reading it and if it's really not working for you by page 30 then you know, take it back or buy something new and find something that really gets your attention. Because once as a reader, like if you find something that gets your attention and you can't put it down, it's like so enjoyable. There's nothing like that feeling where you're like, I don't want the book to end. And it, there are more books like that. So if you get that feeling, like you 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 don't have to worry. <laughs> if you'll be able to find more books that keep your attention, get you excited, but you got to find that one, which comes from a little bit of practice and really getting into the habit of of reading on a regular basis.
0: Absolutely. I remember that experience of a book. It was, to be honest, it was a year or two ago and I literally did not want to put it down. It was one of those moments where sometimes you see those people walk on the street with a book in their hand. I'm like, you cannot be consuming anything you're reading whilst walking down the street. But I was that person for at least a week because I just I just don't want to put it down. So I think that, like you said, if I wasn't in the habit of reading at the time, it probably wouldn't have been able to grip me. The story was, of course, super, super entertaining, but it was the third of a force set of books. So it allowed me to build the story. I was practicing in the first two books, so to speak, to get to my but yeah, to get to that level where I was able to be absorbed by the books. And uh yeah, it was an amazing, amazing feeling. And even I would arguably say better than any pull that a Netflix show or a movie would have had
1: on me as well. Yeah. So I'm I'm thrilled that you you found a book that you loved and and I think you know everybody can can find that. And it's, it's a really enjoyable feeling. And I think, um, it's just books are never ending like sources of, of entertainment and possibility and learning. So, so I'm a big fan of books, (laughs) encourage everyone to read, you know, for a few minutes a day.
0: Absolutely. And I feel the beauty of the fact that the, the test of time in such a solid and beautiful manner is it speaks volumes as well, in the sense that, you know, you can trace it back to years and years and years ago, but also to this day. I think that, of course, it may not be as popular as it once was, but I feel that it's almost something that I can't see ever leaving. I don't see digitalizing of everything leaving physical books in the past. Do you have any theories around that?
1: I don't. So I but it's a real issue and i think you know i started the business juniper books in 2001 and back at that time like people were saying and i'd come out of the tech business i should say i'd done some things in the early days of the internet and you know my tech friends were like why are you bothering you know didn't you get the memo ebooks are the future printed books are going away why would anybody have them and, you know a few years down the road and and i i thought very differently i thought i love printed books i love libraries i love the feeling I get when I go into a bookstore, it's just, you know, soothing and being surrounded by books and, and the enjoyment of reading itself. I, I didn't have the same experience reading on the screen. And, and especially since we spend all of our days at a screen, like I think we should do something different at the end of the day in the real world. So I, my response basically to the threat or the possibility of books going away was, you know, can I make them better? Can I make them more beautiful, more interesting to have on the shelf when you're not reading them? So can they do something for us both in our hands, but also, you know, when their covers are closed and can they just decorate our homes more in a more interesting and beautiful way? Can they tell the story of who we are while we're on a Zoom call or when people come over to our house and see our book collection? Can they be a work of art? And that's all the things that we do at Juniper Books is to really transform the outside of books to tell a story and to be artistic and convey some of the emotions and, that are inside the book on the outside of the covers. and. Some of the story of the person who owns that library, like across the bookshelves through color palette or the designs or maybe an image that we print on the book jackets. And I think that like gets to some of the things we were talking about when we're talking about kids and their devices. Like, can we make the real world, you know, better and more compelling than the digital version? So, you know, that's something I've tried to do over the years with books.
0: I think you're doing an incredible job at it as well. I had a little look through the Instagram and it was yeah, pretty damn impressive. So if anyone hasn't checked it out, I would highly recommend it. This conversation has been fascinating, Thatcher. And I just want to ask you a couple of final questions. The first is what impact do you want to have on the world of all the work that you're creating and putting out?
1: I definitely want to you know, bring a sense of beauty and wonder to people and feeling like you know, they can live very like, full, sustainable, creative lives in a way that really feels good and and allows them to you know make their own contribution and and i think a lot of that comes from just taking some things away to get to the essence and figure out what is sustainable for you and then building back on to a point that that works so that's a lot of my
0: my message amazing and where's the best place for people to find you if they want to keep up with the work that you do
1: yeah. So you mentioned social media a second ago. So my personal account is Thatcher Wine, and then the business account is Juniper Books. And then there's also my personal website is thatcherwine.com and the business is juniperbooks.com. And again, the book is The 12 Monotasks, Do One Thing at a Time to Do Everything Better. And it's available in multiple editions and languages around the world. So I love hearing from people through, through my website or social media DMs. So tell me how it works for you. Yeah, that
0: will be put in the show notes. So hopefully people can access your work. But thank you so much for your time safe, Thatcher. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Elliot. Yeah, it was great talking with you. Thanks so much. It's been a
0: pleasure. And that was the Simply Fit podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from